Let us pray. Oh, right. <laughs> we can pray. That's a good idea. Are you recording yet? I just said we can pray like it's an option. We're going to be live streaming. Um, uh, so I'll just open up with prayer. Does anybody have anything in particular you want to call out? My cousin's brother died this evening. He's better off. So we're going to family. else? Let's pray. Uh, dearest Father, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you that we're never alone and that we don't have to do this on our own, this, this life, uh, this teaching, this, uh, this walk with you. And so we ask that you will be very present with us this evening, that you will uh, cover us with your grace. You'll, your grace will ride on all of my words and any words that we say to each other that our hearts will be open to what you're saying to us. That, Lord, we lift up this, this friend uh, that's lost, uh, lost this family that's lost this, this person. Um, as Jeff said, he's better off, but those that are left behind, they always struggle. Uh, we're not meant to be parted. And so uh, we pray for special grace, a uh, special sense of your presence uh, with those that are affected by this death. Your grace will be powerfully with them. And Lord, for all of us in our lives and in the craziness of everything that we have going on, we pray that you'll uh, show us your movements in us, with us, and around us, and show us how to join you in that work, uh, how to relax knowing that you're in control. Oh, and Lord, we ask you for all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> So to establish connection with what we've been doing up until now, um, the theme of, I guess you would say the theme of what we're doing is knowing Jesus. Now if you look through the Bible, the word knowledge comes up a whole lot. Now nowadays, we, particularly in our Protestant tradition, um, we've taken the idea of knowledge as something that we have straight in our head. Uh, but that's not what the Bible, it almost never refers to uh, head knowledge, knowledge is head knowledge. So for instance, in the scripture that I love in 2 Peter 1, it says, it has knowledge four or five times. Uh, it starts out, grace and knowledge be multiplied unto you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, uh, Peter goes on to say, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him by which he uh, uh, granted us his precious and very great promises. Uh, and it says knowledge again at the end. In the middle there it says, add to your faith virtue and to your virtue knowledge. Now that knowledge is different than all the rest of them. Okay? That knowledge there means, it really means understanding. It really means kind of getting things right in your head. Uh, but the exception proves the rule. Almost every other time in the New Testament the word knowledge is used. It's the word like you recognize somebody. Like you'd say, I know that guy. Right? What does that mean when you say you, you know someone? What? Familiarity. Familiarity, yeah. How, how do you get familiar with people? Spend time. you got to spend time with them. You wouldn't say you knew somebody that you knew things about them. You might say, well, I, I know about them, 
where I've seen them, or I know the name. Know of. I know of, yeah. But that's different than knowing. Um, and so knowledge is this, this real interaction. And to deeply know somebody would be to, to have even richer interaction with them. Um, so we're commanded by Peter to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. Everything all right? Okay. Um, so how are you going to grow in knowledge? What, what would it look like to grow in knowledge of a person, of another person? What would that look like? How do you grow in knowledge of somebody? Well, first off, before I ask that, what, what would you think of when you, when you, have you ever read that scripture, and what would you thought it meant if we weren't having this conversation? You'd probably think in terms of, like, I've got to study my Bible more, and I've got to get theology right, and, and understand those. That's how we grow in our knowledge of Jesus. Well, they used to talk about in the Bible that it meant intimacy. Yeah, exactly. Like Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. For him to use that word, it would have to be interactive because Jesus would know of everybody, right? He would know probably everything about us. The number of hairs on our head, right? Um, probably the number of cells in our body. He would probably read our DNA, if that's a thing. Can you do that? Yeah, I'm sure you could, if you could. Um, but, but to grow in knowledge of somebody, think of it like your significant other. You met them. Maybe you grew up with them. I know some of you guys didn't grow up together, right? You did. You did. And you guys didn't grow up together, but some of you did. You and Jill knew each other like from the womb. Um, and Amy actually. That dream's going to That's not what I meant. So Amy proposed to me when we were four. Actually, she didn't propose. She told me she was going to marry me when we were four. Um, so we've known each other. What's that? Voluntold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, we. We grew up that way, uh, knowing each other, and we knew each other pretty well by the time we actually started dating. You know, she kind of went back on that for a while. We won't go into that story. <laughs> but uh, she's not in here, so I can get away with it. Maybe she won't listen to the podcast. Um, but, uh, but as you, even though we knew each other really, really well, when we got married, we moved in together, we got to know each other. We grew in knowledge of each other, didn't we? And you guys did the same thing. All of you did that. Um, and now, you know, a lot of us have been married a long time, and we've grown in even more knowledge. And sometimes that's a beautiful thing, and sometimes it don't work out so well, right? Because who we really are starts to come out in those places. So growing knowledge of Jesus, it's very similar. Uh, it, it, the way you really grow in knowledge of somebody is to be with them on a consistent basis. The only way you can grow in knowledge of somebody is to spend time with them. Interaction, like real life interaction. Intimacy, the word Buddy used, comes from shared experience. So when I experience something and you experience it along with me, that's where intimacy comes from. So, you know, I've probably given this illustration before, but you're riding, or like the other day, I was here and Amy was here. We, we both were here before sunrise. She was working on some music. I was working on some stuff for this weekend. And uh, I had to walk out and get something. And over y'all's neighborhood, like the clouds were the bubbly clouds. And the sun was coming up. And it was like purple and then deep red. And oh, man, it was just breathtaking. So what did I do? Beat on Amy's door. You got to come out and see this. Why do we do that? Because it's a better shared experience. Because sharing. You can't share it ratchets up the experience when we can share it, doesn't it? Um, 
to, to see something like that and not be able to share it with anybody is almost torturous, isn't it? I was um, working in Paris with a guy. And we were going to see the Eiffel Tower. He refused to go because he wanted to see it for the first time with his wife. Wow. See, that's... That, and that's we had our scene together, so I was okay with that. Right. He didn't mind it the second time, right? But that speaks very deep to that because not only did it was such an intimate experience because Eiffel Tower is such a big deal, big experiences heightened the intimacy, and he didn't want to he didn't want to waste that on you. Right. I mean, it doesn't mean that in a bad way. It didn't mean that, but because of the level of intimacy, that's actually a perfect illustration. And so, so the way those experiences go, that's how we draw close to each other. Having children, if there's a, if, if there's a good, strong bond, having children uh, brings you even closer together because not only are you sharing experience, but there's actually a deeper way to share experience. To share work is an even deeper way to share experience. And you grow close to people that you work with. And when you're doing a family and you're doing a budget, and you're doing this, and you're doing that, and y'all are focused, and y'all are online, and you're working together, and then kids are thrown into that, and now, like, the work is ratcheted up. It can, it can have the ability to drive you apart because of the stress. We're going to get to that a little bit tonight. But it can also have the experience of drawing you closer together if things are good, and the bond's good, because, I mean, it's, a, it's that intimacy of shared endeavor is one of the highest ways that we can share experience. So that's why God didn't create us and create a garden and just say, hey, let's just hang out every day, guys. He did some hanging out, right? You know, after the fall, we see that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. That was referenced. So I think that was kind of a hanging out kind of thing. But there was more to it than that. He gave us work to do so that we could do the work with them. And so all of your life, life kind of, it, it kind of presents itself, doesn't it, as a series of tasks. Just one thing after the other that really we're responsible for in a lot of ways. What we were talking about in Sabbath this morning is it's a matter of taking all those tasks, you know, as much as you can and saying, I'm not responsible for any of those today. I'm, I'm going to rest. I'm going to let God handle all of that, right? Um, but, but really, that's how our life presents itself as a series of tasks. And God can actually be your most intimate person because he's the only one that can actually be with you with everything. And so what we need to do as Christians, we need to shift our thinking in, and understand that the point of this is the with God life. It's learning to live everything I do with God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. To do it in the name of Jesus means to share the work with him. It means to make whatever you're doing a part of what he's doing. That's actually what it means to seek the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's action on earth. It's what God's doing. You know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Those are the same thing. And so where God's will is being done is where his kingdom is effective. It's where it's working. So what I can do is to seek the kingdom doesn't mean I do something special. Seeking first doesn't mean I get up really early and pray before I start my work. So I can seek the kingdom first and then go do everything else I gotta do. It's a good thing to get up early and pray, but that's not seeking first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom is to shift the purpose for which you do everything and to make it a part of the kingdom. So my job is a part of God's kingdom. My interaction with my family is a part of God's kingdom. Whatever you do, it can be a part of God's kingdom. And in that place, I find that shared experience, the shared endeavor with God, 
where I can grow in knowledge and also in grace. To grow in grace means to grow in to the to grow in the the amount. Trying to find a good way to say this in the degree of which God is moving with you in what you're doing. So grace is not forgiveness. To grow in grace, if if that means forgiveness, that just means I mean it probably means just sin a bunch more, so you need more grace. But that's not really what grace is for. Grace covers sin. Thank God. But that's not all it does. Grace is not just for sin. It's for life. And so God's grace moving with us in what we do. To grow in that means to grow in the degree to which God moves with us in what we're doing. So I'm growing in the fact that there's, there's less and less that I'm doing on my own and more and more I'm doing with God. That makes sense? And so the growing in grace will help us to grow in knowledge. They'll go together because the more I'm operating with God, the more I'll know Him if I'm attentive to His movements with me. Alright? So, got that straight. So that's, that's partnership with God. So that's the center of everything. And so, the only way we can do partnership is through servanthood. Because the pro- to, to do partnership with God means that what I'm doing in this moment, I make it a part of God's agenda. God's primary agenda in everything is that we bless each other. That we work for the good of each other. That's, that's his primary agenda. When I'm in a conversation with Buddy, God's primary agenda is that I act and speak and, and move in such a way that it brings blessing to Buddy. Now, he might have a specific word. You see that with Jesus. Sometimes he knew exactly what to say to a person, what they needed to hear. And sometimes he might have something specific he wants me to do for Buddy. And if I'm in tune with him, or sometimes even if I'm not, God can move with me in a way that I can do that. Sometimes he has a specific agenda. But we don't have to worry about that. What we really need to concentrate on is his overarching agenda that's always there. And that is that we bless the people that we interact with. So when I'm teaching here, God's agenda is that we would grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But that's meant to be a blessing. That I'm meant to speak and move and act in such a way that I bring blessing to you guys. And so it's not primarily about me. It's about you. And whenever God gifts us, and we all have gifts, those gifts aren't about us. They're about what we have that God has blessed us with, with which we can bless others. And so the only way, the, the real way we can learn to live in partnership with God is through servanthood. It's really through agape love. But we use the word servanthood because love kind of gets, you know, we get kind of mix up with the word love sometimes. Like, you know, I love that stuff you made tonight, Cindy. It was really good. <laughs> but it's not really love because, you know, where is it now? I didn't take very good care of it. I didn't bless it. It blessed me. I used it for my own pleasure, right? Um, so that's not love. But also we get this idea that love is how we feel about people, and that's not true. Um, you know, I love people that I don't always feel so good about. Uh, and maybe I can love, I cannot love people that I didn't have those feelings about. It's possible. Um, and, you know, we, I think we see that a lot. We see people that, back to the marriage thing, they fall out of love. What that really means is they don't feel the same way they used to feel. So, so the reason I use the word servanthood because servanthood actually gives love uh, teeth. Uh, servanthood, I like to say, is the train is the track on which the train of agape love runs. 
In other words, servanthood is always the direction that agape love will run. That I always live as a servant with agape love. And that puts me right in line with God because God is love and God is a servant. Jesus said that. He's the exact representation of the Father. And what's He said to His disciples? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. We see Him washing the disciples' feet. We see Him trying to get away to get some rest, but seeing people needed help. And He says, you know, He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so He's constantly pouring Himself out for others. So another way of saying servanthood is it's pouring yourself out for the good of others. And when I do that, particularly when I'm mindful of God being with me, then I am, you know, I learn to move with God. So with partnership, I, I pray and I move in such a way that I expect God to move with me. All right. So I can't do partnership without servanthood. So tonight's lesson, tonight's lesson, I can't do servanthood without trust. It's actually impossible for me to live without live as a servant without learning to trust. So the number one thing that will get in your way of being able to serve is your desires, or particularly particularly the um, the need, the drive to have your desires fulfilled. Okay? So, um, a lot of times people will say they can't do, they won't put themselves out for others because they're afraid. They're afraid that they'll be, come on, a mat for people to walk on, or they're afraid they'll put themselves in a situation where they get hurt, or they're afraid of this or that. Uh, and what we find with this fear, the fear always at its bottom, all fear is what ultimately is, is this isn't going to go well. I'm not going to get what I want out of it. And so trust and fear are opposites. So what, what has happened in our fallen state is we're born dead in trespasses and sin. And because of that, there's this places, and you've always talked, we've always heard people talk about this God-shaped hole in our souls. But what actually happens, God is this vibrant life, right, that's constantly moving in our world. The whole earth is full of His glory. And I was made in such a way, my soul was made in such a way that it was constantly meant to be enlivened by the presence and the power and the life of God. That I was always meant to be connected with God and His life flowing in me. And that was actually where all my fulfillment would come from. But here's the problem. Being dead in trespasses and sin, I'm lacking that for which my soul was made for. Now if you watch little children, if they've been well taken care of, they're vibrant, aren't they? That's why we shut the door while we're trying to teach, because they're so vibrant. Um, they've got this flow of life, this vitality, but tragically it doesn't take long for that to start to be squelched out of them. Like you can take a little baby right now, every one of you can take that baby and just look in its eyes endlessly because there's something precious and innocent about that baby's soul that you can just drink in. I'm not going to have you do it, but try to do it with an adult. <laughs> just try to look in their eyes endlessly like you do with a baby. And it's not the same, is it? Jeff, that's creepy. <laughs> 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 that's creepy. <laughs> 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 
this next time, Dave. <laughs> so because of this lack, <clears throat> the thing that can provide us with the greatest kick to mask that deprivation, because it's what it is, it's deprivation of soul. The thing that can provide us with the greatest kick to mask that deprivation is the fulfillment of our desires. So it starts when we're young. We start as babies, and we're fed when we're upset, right? And we, we learn to appreciate the fulfillment of that desire, and, it, and it, 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 it strikes us deeply. And then as we get older, we do things for people, and they approve of it, and it feels good. You watch a kid, and this is actually innocent and pure and beautiful. We weren't, this isn't the pride that we talk about you know, in the Bible. But they get so excited. You watch, they can't contain themselves when you when you appreciate something they did. And if they walk in the kitchen and they see their drawing on the refrigerator, then it hits them all over again, doesn't it? Right? And that's a beautiful thing. But because of our deprivation, I'm not saying we should stop doing that. We absolutely should keep doing that. But because of our deprivation, that ends up taking the place of the vibrant flow of God's life in our soul. And so we become addicted to approval. Anybody deal with that? You don't have to raise your hand. So we become addicted to the fulfillment of our desires, like our physical desires for food and other things. Uh, we become addicted to approval. Uh, another thing, you watch little kids, another thing they do, they're developing their little kingdoms. They're learning to, to run their lives. But they, they don't want to just run their lives. They want to run other people's lives too, don't they? Right? And they want to be in charge. And they want to make things happen. And they want to make things work the way they want it to. And they become addicted to power in that sense. And, uh, you know, we were just hearing today about some, uh, you know, one of somebody in our family is being bullied at school. Little kid. Why do kids bully? Well, it's, it's power. You know, um, they do it because probably because it was done to them. It gave them a sense of powerlessness. And to gain that back, they find the next weak link, and they do it to them because of power. And so all of these things, and you know, God made us for power, not power over others. It was supposed to be power with others. But the, see, God, our, all of our desires are God-given. There's, there's nothing in our desires that's not God-given. They've just gotten out of whack because they've come to run wild because they, they're all we have. Instead of us having the vibrant flow of life from God and our desires just moving us to move with Him, they became our God, and so they come to rule our lives. See, the thing is, it's funny because we don't want to submit to God. Humanity doesn't want to submit to God, but we end up trading God for an even more harsh taskmaster, and that's our desires. Our desires rule us. Perfect illustration. How many of you have ever tried to die in? How many of you have ever enjoyed dieting? No, we don't enjoy dieting. Right? Because we like to eat what we want to eat when we want to eat it. I'm fine to diet right after I've gotten through eating. When I've got a full stomach, it's easy to diet. It doesn't even affect me. Right? I'm thinking, man, my next meal is going to be salad. Uh, uh, until I'm hungry, he's, well, we can laugh, but that's all he ever eats is salad. I mean, that's like as much sugar as he'll eat all week. Um, uh, but but once, we're, once we have that full feeling, then the desires don't, 
don't hit us the way, that, but once they get going again, then we need that kick. And so we and and some of us, I'm one of these people. We actually get exo- excited when we're hungry, right? Because we get to eat again. We get to we get to fulfill that desire, right? And none of this is bad. None of our desires are wrong. But because of the place they've come to occupy in our souls, we they master us and we're unable to love. Anytime desire sits on the throne of your life, you will be unable to love. You'll be unable to live as a servant. If you do serve, it will be to serve yourself in some way. That's what Jesus is addressing in Matthew 6. People were given money, which is a servanthood thing to do, but what were they doing? They were uh, doing it in such a way that they fulfilled the desire for approval. They were given money in front of everybody. so that and, and that's the name of the game in our culture of life without God. The only self-control we know of without God is the self-control of subordinating one desire for a higher desire, not for a higher good. So I can lay aside food because I have the desire to have a six-pack. Obviously, I don't have... That, that's not a higher desire. That's not a high enough priority on my list. Uh, but some people can do that. Or they can lay aside buying things because they have a desire for a big bank account or something like that. But godly self-control is not the same thing. Godly self-control subordinates desire to what's good. So I think I, think I said this last week. But sin is a matter of our desires holding a higher place in our hearts than what's good for others or even for ourselves. That's what sin is. Say that again. Sin is, uh, sin is when my desires, it's a condition of soul, it's a condition, not just the sins that I commit. As a condition, it is when my desires hold a higher place in my heart than what's good for others. So I can do what's good for others until my desires are crossed. In terms of anger, we say it this way, I am fed up. Or we tell our kids, you're on my last nerve, right? In other words, my desire to do you good is at its end, (laughs) right? So, love is patient. Well, why is love patient? Because love has subordinated the desire for what it wants, for what's good. That doesn't mean you don't punish a kid. Absolutely, you punish a kid. If you love them, you punish them. It's not love. But there's a difference between losing it on your kid and punishing your kid, right? I know you've all been there. Um, and so this was a podcast. I would quote what Cindy Burton just told us a moment about good mothering. <laughs> After we're finished, I'd love to hear it. After we um, Okay, so the opposite of that is true as well. So love... Love is where my, uh, my uh, drive for the good of others holds a higher place in my heart than the fulfillment of my desires, than my desires. Okay? So that means I can release what I want for what's good. Now, all sin, all the individual sins that we commit come from this condition of sin. So you name it. You go through the Sermon on the Mount. Anger, contempt, lust, manipulation, desire for control, unforgiveness, 
all the things that we struggle with, they are all indications of that condition of soul in which what I want is more important than what's good for others. A very clear illustration of this is forgiveness or resentment. The reason we hold on to things is because they took something from us that we desire. Now, I don't mean it's a trivial thing. Sometimes we desire really good stuff and it's taken from us. But in order for us to forgive, we have to cherish the other person above what they took from us. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is choosing to cherish the other more than what they took from us. Now, in order to do that, that's where the word trust comes in. What if it? What if what they took from me? You know, I've heard the story, and you guys have probably heard the story where there was a family who uh, adopted the teenager who was driving drunk and in a in a wreck because he was drunk. He killed their son. So, and they adopted the kid that killed their son driving drunk. Uh, he was 16, 17 years old. They took him in. How do you do that? They took, he took, his irresponsibility takes the most precious thing that you can imagine from you. And you forgive him. And not, you don't just, just forgive him. You bring him into your house. You make him your son. So how do you do that? There's only one way you can do that. You have to trust. So does that mean they cherish that young man more than they cherish their son? It actually doesn't mean that. Okay? Because they didn't lose their son. All they lost was, and it's not all because it's a big deal, but ultimately all they lost was the ability to interact with their son for a season. Because in trust, we recognize that anything I lose, God will more than redeem in the end. That's what trust means. Trust means that I can't lose anything that God won't redeem and so when I live in that level of trust, then I'm free to forgive because I know there is ultimately nothing that someone can take from me that God won't make for my good. So trust is reliance upon the goodness and the sufficiency of God. His ability to redeem things, but not just that, but His ability in the moment to be our sufficiency. Just to be personal, yesterday was mine and Amy's 15th anniversary of losing Micah. And we can testify that, man, that was the most painful thing you can imagine. But there was goodness and sufficiency that was supernatural. I mean, it was ridiculous how amazing it was that God's goodness and sufficiency even in loss far outweighs what we lose and it's not trivializing it if you've been there you couldn't trivialize it there's no trivializing it but to stand in such a way to learn the goodness and sufficiency of God to, so what we are apt to do in life apart from God, what we trust is the goodness and sufficiency of the fulfillment of our desires. And that is a losing game because they will never be enough. 
If what you need is people's approval, you will never have enough. If what you need is things to go your way, you will never have enough. If what you need is this artificial peace from medication, you know, that's, that's what drug use is. I'm not talking about people that really need that, but, but people that are addicted to drugs, that's a way of bypassing the goodness and sufficiency of the peace of God and trying to find it artificially. And it's never enough. And that's why addiction in all of its forms gets so out of hand because it provides the initial kick that gives immediate relief from the deprivation because of lack of God. But then it actually pushes us further away from God because it pushes us further away from being able to live as a servant and being able to trust Him. And so the deprivation actually gets deeper. And so we need a bigger kick next time because it wore off. And so we have to go back and get a bigger kick and go back and get a bigger kick because of that deprivation. And actually the very thing that we're trying to fill the hole with is actually making it worse. And then we're unable to love and we're unable to care for God. But those of us that have been reconnected with God, we've sensed that. We've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good. But what we need is a, is a way to live in such a way that we can actually make progress in laying those desires aside, putting those desires aside so that we can subordinate them to, to the goodness of God and to live in a life of servanthood. So this discipleship, Jesus says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. The point isn't that he's not going to let you be his disciple if you're not going to take up your cross. The point is, is that it's only through the taking up my, of my cross that then taking up my cross is saying my desires are not going to be the boss of me. No longer will I let my desire for approval or my desire for my way or my desire for pleasure or for comfort, no longer will I want to let that rule me. I'm going to live for the good of others. And if I have to sacrifice everything for the good of others, it'll be worth it. Because the fulfillment of my desires will no longer be my goodness and sufficiency. It's going to be God. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And the reason I did servanthood first is because I wanted us to get out there and be practicing it because I bet you guys found out there's a lot of things that trip you up from living as a servant, isn't it? Like you try, Did you try living the blessing of Aaron throughout the day? Well, there are times when you come across a situation where you're like, I don't want to bless them. Right? Well, what has happened there is your desires have said, what about me? I need to be fulfilled. And they're actually pretty sneaky. Paul talks about the deceitfulness of our desires in Ephesians. I think it's 3 or 4. The deceitfulness of desire. See, the reason desire is deceitful because desire will tell you, I have to be fulfilled, and your life cannot be good unless I'm fulfilled. But if I'm fulfilled, you will have everything that you want. All the joy and peace comes in the fulfillment of me. And it's deceitful. It's a lie. It doesn't work. But when through following Jesus, we learn to subordinate our desires to what's good, then we can live in such a way that we can live as a servant and we can live connected to God. Okay, so we just got a few more minutes left. Could you guys pass these sheets around? Couple that way. I need to keep one. Okay, so I've been giving you one thing to work on. So this week I'm going to give you like six or seven. But you can choose one. Okay, so it's kind of a multiple choice kind of thing.
Okay, so real quick, before we get into the sheep, Jesus' commands, and we're going to talk about this before we uh, break for the summer, but Jesus' commands, they, they are the indication. You're probably thinking, how do I know what desires are driving me? And maybe some of you, it's pretty obvious, and, but often it's hard to figure out, isn't it? Like how, so you might be thinking, how do I know what desires are driving me? Jesus' commands actually provide us with a way to see that. So if there's something you struggle with in particular, maybe you get angry. Then you can look at the reasons you get angry. Like one time, Stephen, we were getting ready for church, and we were getting ready to head out the door, and it was when we were at CPC, uh, and uh, Stephen was learning to tie shoes, and we were running behind. Uh, we were taking like eight kids to practice at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Amy and I both had to be there. So we're dragging them all out the door, trying to get out, and Stephen says, Daddy, can you help me tie my shoes? No, son, you need to get in the van. And... Hey, can you help me drive tie my shoes? And I yelled at him, you know, unleashed on him. It was okay. I could have said, no, I told you, go get in the van. There will be a punishment if you don't. That would have been fine. But what I did was I unleashed on him, and I saw immediately the pain that I caused him. And so when I was thinking about that later, I thought, well, why did I do that? Well, what, So what was the desire that was ruling me in that moment? There were a few, but the main one was what people thought about me. People were always saying, I don't see how y'all do it. Y'all are so great. When you start showing up late for a few t- a few times, they don't say that anymore. They start saying, Mark and Amy, they're late for everything. Right? <laughs> um, and so, uh, so if you're addicted to approval, then that doesn't feel good. And so you unleash on your son, no good reason, because you're worried about what people are going to say about you. Uh, and so what happens when we mess up when we commit individual sins, it helps us to see deep down what's driving us. It takes prayer, it takes thought, it may take conversations with people. But it helps us, we can uncover what deep down is driving us. Okay, so what this sheet here is, the discipline of, disciplines of abstinence uh, says they're designed to disrupt and conquer habits of thought, feeling, and action that work against our involvement in the kingdom of God. These are habits that work against us from being able to live as a servant. And primarily, they reside; those habits reside in our feelings, in our desires. Okay? So what these do, these help us to isolate specific desires and work on them in such a way that we can subordinate them to what's good. So all of these deal with things that aren't bad. I'm going to go through them really quick. It's 8 o'clock, but if I can have about two more minutes. Um, fasting is very central because food is so central to our lives. Fasting, it might not be your desire for food that causes you to uh, snap at people, though sometimes that might be the case if you're hungry. Um, But often it's the need to have what we want when we want it that makes us snap at people. Fasting is a way of telling yourself, I don't have to have what I want and I'll still be okay. That I can have a deep desire and not fulfill it, and I'll still be all right. In fact, I might be even better if God shows up. So instead of relying on the goodness and sufficiency of the pleasures of eating, in fasting, I set that aside. Not that there's anything wrong with food, but I set it aside in order to experience God's goodness above food. If I'm constantly filling my face with food, then I may not be able to experience God in a way, uh, in the same way as if I would set it aside and feel that deprivation 
so that I can feel that hole in my soul with him. All right, so real quick, I'd love to go deeper, but um, frugality is just laying aside, using your money for things like status or uh, comfort. Uh, one thing you'll realize, and sometimes you'll get grumpy just when you're uncomfortable. When, in, in our culture particularly, we're addicted to comfort. Um, we have comfort foods. We have comfort settings in our car, right? We have comfortable seats. Um, so comfort becomes addictive. And so sometimes we use our money for comfort. Sometimes we use our money for uh, luxury. Sometimes we use our money for status. Like Dave Ramsey says, we buy things we don't need with money. We don't have to impress people we don't like. Um, and so frugality is saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to buy this you know, lesser car rather than buying this. And once again, nothing wrong with having a nice car. This is not, these, these are not sins. It is not a sin to have nice things. But when those things represent places in our souls where God needs to be, we have to set them aside for what's good. And it's always good to pair these disciplines with some kind of service. Like in frugality, maybe you could set the thermostat up 10 degrees, 5 degrees maybe, uh, and, you, and figure out the money that you saved and go give the money to, to somebody good. And so you can suffer a little bit in your comfort for the good of others. And that gives you the, the ability to, to subordinate. You're literally subordinating your desires for what's good. Okay, so Sabbath. We talked about Sabbath today. I'm not going to go deeply into Sabbath. You're going to hear about it for five more weeks. Um, <laughs> sacrifice is deliberately, where frugality is excess, sacrifice is laying aside something that you genuinely need uh, for the good of others. Uh, my Dallas Wheeler quote for today. He said one time when he was in uh, college, he and his wife were married. He was in graduate school. Uh, that after paying their bills, they gave away everything they had for a month, all their money. So they didn't have, they couldn't go out and buy food. Now it's back, you know, in the day where you just did, you didn't have pantries full of food, right? And so they just gave it all away. And uh, he said that very day there was money pinned to the steering wheel of his car enough for them to eat off of for the rest of the week, uh, for the rest of the month. He said we ate like kings for the rest of the month. And he, they didn't tell anybody about that. So uh, the point to sacrifice is learning that even my deepest needs can be met through the provision of God. They don't always have to be met through the provision of my own hands. All right. Secrecy is how you do all these disciplines if you really want to get good at them. It's, there's nothing wrong with people knowing when you do things, but when you're addicted to approval or the pat on the back, doing things in secrecy allows you not only to lay aside the desire that you're laying aside, like fasting or whatever, but it also takes away our hunger for approval or recognition. We love recognition. All of us love, well, maybe not all of us. I love recognition. I struggle with that. I'm still waiting on somebody to say that I did a better job than Noel in the sermon today. So if y'all got a chance to do that afterwards, <laughs> come by and see me. Um, but only if you can do it honestly, or if you want to lie, that's fine too. Um, but no, seriously, secrecy teaches us to not have to have approval for the things that we do. You will never be able to love people if you need approval from them. You'll never be able to ultimately do what's good for people if you need their approval. Um, sometimes we have to have hard conversations, and if we're worried about people's approval, we, we just can't do that. And there's so many other ways that works out. Got to go quick. All right, so silence one is closing ourselves off from sounds. It goes really well with solitude at the end. It's just getting to a place where you're not being assaulted. They said the last 
one of the last things to go at death is hearing. So like from the moment we're born to the moment we take our last breath, we are assaulted on all sides with sounds. Even when you go into your house, there's something whirring and buzzing constantly. And so finding a place where you can have real silence, except maybe some gentle water running, you know, not at the house. Um, but maybe, like, maybe a creek or something like that, right? Um, maybe some birds chirping, something like that. Um, but but just giving ourselves the ability, because sign, you, what, look how quick you need to turn on the radio when you get in the car. Noise becomes strange, but noise becomes strangely comforting to us. And so we begin filling our souls with that. And we, and, and we can't go without silence. So silence. Try for five minutes at a time. Don't go too deep. Uh, but learning to live without. So the second one is the practice of not speaking. So I've just spoken nonstop for about 45 minutes now. But in the practice of not speaking, and this is, this is really, really central as well. We've talked about this. Often we rely on the goodness and sufficiency of our own words, don't we? So the practice of not having the last... Word. We talked about that practice. Well, what that does is you're saying at that point, I'm going to trust God. I don't have to say what I have to say. Right? I'm going to. Why are you looking at me, Mark? But I'm not looking at you, Sandy. Why are you feeling so guilty, Sandy? Oh, I just got the last word. I'm sorry. Um, no, but often we use we use our words to. And it's not just always about having the last word. Sometimes we say something we feel stupid about and we try to fix it. And then it makes it worse. Uh, sometimes when I'm in a conversation, y'all remember the old cartoons where they, there's water coming through one thing and they'll stick their finger in it and it starts coming out somewhere else. And sometimes I feel like that in a conversation. I'm like, and just, there's water coming out everywhere. There's nothing I can do. I often feel like that in a conversation. Um, but sometimes we can just shut up and let God work. You know? Okay, and then solitude. We've talked about solitude, so I'm not going to go deeply into that. Uh, but the reason solitude is the central discipline of abstinence is because it cuts us off from everything else in a way that nothing, nothing else can, especially when it's combined with silence one. It cuts us off from everything and gives God a chance to, it gives us a chance to be still and know that He's God and He can get our attention. All right. So uh, I know I threw a lot at you real quick there at the end. I'm available to talk if you want to ask about how to do these or some some suggestions. You got any questions? You got any arguments? I'm good with all that. Uh, so I'm going to close this out with a prayer and then you guys can come to me afterwards. All right. So Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessings, for all the many ways you've shown us your incredible goodness, your incredible sufficiency. And so we pray right now that you'll be more real to us than you've ever been so that we can really relax and turn our lives over to you. Help us to rest in your goodness and leave this life of always striving, always trying to make things work. We ask it in Christ's name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thank you guys. Sorry I ran up.